Hello everyone, welcome to Sherlock from Adler to Amberley Live. I'm Carl Kopak, your host, uh, with producer John, who is also a host as well, let's face it. Um, we are calling from, I'm calling from Norwich in Norfolk, and John is, where Swansea, John? Just Swansea, yes, in South Wales. Right, um, and our guests today are calling from Kent and Malibu, and we've decided that Leslie wins because he's in Malibu. And uh, I'm on quite a loud street with a pub opposite my front door, so I'm hoping that doesn't come through. So just a w quick warning before um, before we start um, the episode, well, we've started already. I have a dog that barks when you put your shoes on. So if anyone downstairs is putting shoes on, he won't shut up. Um, John has a dog too, but I think um, your dog's been silenced. Well, so far. Um, Hello, yeah. Baltimore. <laughs> We're going to be doing shout-outs throughout the whole thing. Um, this is a tremendous honour for us to do this, isn't it, John? We, we did a show, um, John, I was going to have a little chat before we, um, we do this little recap um, of the two episodes. Um, John and I have um, just done a, a show for, for Rippercast about how we started this show. Um, I didn't think we'd be here, John. No. Live events, Bert Cools, <laughs> Leslie Klinger, um, the people in Indianapolis. Hello. <laughs> um and it's just, uh, we're very, very grateful for everyone who's listening and, and you know, has downloaded it and, and come back with comments. Um, ah, the Netherlands. Hello, Netherlands. Um, and um, it's, just, it's just been phenomenal, the, the, the fact, you know, the, the, how, how we've been welcomed. And we, we, we're very, very sort of shocked, very humbled by it all, certainly. And, um, <laughs> and here we are. And... Um, with two of the greats of the field, I think we're likely to say. But um, I, mean, I mean, every single guest we've had has just been absolutely incredible. I've loved every single show. Um, even some of the shows themselves have been a bit challenging in terms of content because not a great deal happens in some of them. Uh, but the guests have more and made up for that. Uh, and um, and our two guests today, one we've already met, of course, for it was Leslie Klinger, who does the Five Orange Pips with us. And um, Bert Cools, who, of course, I've mentioned on every single show for about two and a half years. And, and I've met him, everyone, and it went OK. So we're happy with that. Um, so thanks for them for coming on. We're going to start. This is just we're going to treat this like a standard episode, which, of course, it is, um, even though it's a bit of a special one. So we will start with the recap. When I record the recap, I don't write it down. It may seem today that I have written it down and I have, but my delivery looks like I haven't. Got to warn you in advance. So um, we're going to start the final problem and the empty house uh, and the great hiatus um, with a little recap here with some of my very, very amateurish slide work. Um, but before we start, thank you very much for joining us. A recap or recaps of The Final Problem and The Adventure of the Empty House by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Final Problem, not The Adventure of the Final Problem, note, is Watson at his most melancholic. The opening paragraph in which he wrote that these will be the last words about his famous companion must have been greeted with horror by his readers. He is at pains to point out that two of the three versions of the Reichenbach incident are insufficient, while the third, aired by Moriarty's own brother, seemingly also called James for some reason, is an absolute perversion of the truth. Only he knows what occurred in May 1891. The doctor tells of home visiting him at his consulting room, which is near Mortimer Street. 
He's clearly in a state of agitation, and though Watson is, and though Watson is slow to notice it, has burst and bloodied his knuckles. He asks Watson to join him on an aimless trip to the continent. And then he asks if he's ever heard of Professor Moriarty. Of course he hasn't. So Holmes gives him a potted history of his academic career and then his criminal one. Holmes tells him that he's been following and restricting the, the professor's movements for months and finally has a case to lock him up. However, he can't have him arrested until the following Monday as he wants the whole gang under lock and key and not just the lower echelons of his society. He then goes on to relate a surprise visit from Moriarty in Baker Street, a very surprising visit because Holmes actually thinks he's going to be killed. That scene in which Moriarty almost suggests that he's trying to recruit Holmes and get him to join in his plans is absolutely masterful. Ever sceptical though, Watson seems to find it hard to credit, particularly when he learns that this genius of crime has had taxi, has ordered taxis to knock him over, to have bricks thrown at him from the roof, uh, and to be attacked by a solitary man with a bludgeon. It's only when Holmes shows him the, his bloodied hands that he realises that he is in fact in very real danger. He therefore agrees with the trip, well, to go on the trip, and is given a set of meticulous instructions to get him to Victoria Station the next morning. Holmes, ever vigilant, chooses not to stay with Watson and creeps off over the back wall of, of Watson's garden. The next morning, he follows these instructions to the letter, but is alarmed to see that Holmes is not in their reserve carriage as promised. Instead, his place has been taken by an Italian priest who is a little short of English. As he panics, Holmes cheerily removes his disguises and, chast and chastises him for not saying good morning. He was the Italian priest. He then tells him that it was Mycroft who aided Watson's safe passage to the station, as well as the more worrying news that their old lodgings at 221B Baker Street have been set ablaze, though not totally. Watson argues that they should have Moriarty arrested, as he doesn't really feel like he should be in the role of fugitive here, and that's more prof the professor's role. But he's then interrupted by the sight, by the, the sight of the man himself. Moriarty, Moriarty appears on the platform and is attempting to stop the train. He's unsuccessful, however, so but Watson begins to relax. Holmes doesn't. He's not calm at all. And he tells Watson that this isn't over at all and that Moriarty will do almost exactly what he would do and engage a special train to catch them at Canterbury. The train stops there and also there's a 15-minute delay on the boat train. So they decide between them to leave the luggage and get out at Canterbury. When they do, they see that Moriarty's train is in the distance. So this has become a game of cat and mouse. Holmes and Watson escape to, to Strasbourg and on the Monday they receive a telegram at the hotel where they learn that the whole gang has been arrested save for one man. Professor Moriarty has evaded the police. Holmes is furious and he knows that Moriarty is close by and that's why they couldn't arrest him. He asks Watson to return to London because he would find him a very dangerous companion. Moriarty's career is all but over now and he'll do anything to rid the world of his enemy. But there's absolutely no way the good doctor will desert his friend, and they head south towards Switzerland. They arrive at, I'm going to say Meeringen, I could be completely wrong and I apologise for that, in Switzerland, and they stay at the English Hoffer Hotel, which literally means English-speaking hotel. They spend a pleasant week there, and Holmes is in quite a good mood for a man who's well, basically been dogged by the most vicious man in Europe. But he's always aware of what's going around the corner. They go on a walking tour and a rock um, lands near them from above. The guide tells them that these things can happen, but Holmes seems to know better. They're on the way to Rosenlawi and, be, 
and they've been told to stop off at the Reichenbach Falls, which are magnificent, when a messenger comes running towards them with a note from Herr Steiler, their friend at the hotel. An Englishwoman is in the latter stages of consumption and would like to see an English doctor rather than the Swiss one. Watson cannot ignore this summons, he's a doctor first, and it's obvious that Homer doesn't believe a word of it, though he encourages his friend to go. However, when Watson makes the arduous journey, sorry, completes the arduous journey back to the hotel, he realises he's been duped. Styler has never heard of this Englishwoman. The messengers disappeared too. Holmes is all alone. When Watson makes the long trip back to the Reichenbach Falls, a couple of hours that takes, um, Holmes isn't there. But his alpine stock is, which is like his walking stick. However, he's not interested in that. He sees the, the footprints ahead of him. They're joined by another man and they lead to the very edge of the falls. Then there's a muddy patch where there's been clearly been a struggle and he cannot escape the opinion that both have gone over the edge and Sherlock Holmes is dead. He then finds a note from Holmes trapped under the silver cigarette case. It is a farewell. It reads, my dear Watson, I write these few lines through the courtesy of Mr. Moriarty, who awaits my convenience for the final discussions of those questions which lie between us. He has been giving me a sketch of the methods by which he avoided the English police and kept himself informed of our movements. They certainly confirmed the very high opinion in which I had formed of his abilities. I am pleased to think that I shall be able to free society from any further effects of his presence, though I fear that it is at a cost which will give pain to my friends and especially my dear Watson to you. I have already explained to you, however, that my career had in any case reached its crisis, and that no possible conclusion to it could be more congenial to me than this. Indeed, if I may make a full confession to you, I was quite convinced that the letter from Marangan, Mayorangan, sorry, was a hoax, and I allowed you to depart on the errand under the persuasion that some development of this sort would follow. Tell Inspector Patterson that the papers which he needs to convict the gang are in pigeonhole M done up with a blue envelope and inscribed Moriarty. I made every disposition of my property before leaving England and handed it to my brother Mycroft. Pray give my greetings to Mrs Watson and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Watson ends the story by stating that Holmes is the best and the wisest man he has ever known. And that ends the final problem. Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle leaves Holmes and Watson alone from that point from 1893 to August 1901. He had grown tired of writing detective stories, particularly short stories, when he thought that the novels were worthier. Um, but he did bring back Holmes and Watson for The Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, it was clearly written before The Final Problem. In 1903, however, The Strand published a returning story. Ten years since The Final Problem in our world, but only three in the Sherlock universe, in the Sherlock universe, the Adventure of the Empty House by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Watson begins the Empty House in much as the same mood as the one he ended the final problem, broken. The intervening three years have not been kind to him. He is bereaved, though he doesn't go into detail, and now lives and works in Kensington. He clearly misses his old friend and tries to keep him in mind by trying to solve the occasional mystery which is presented to the public, though his results are indifferent. He feels particularly let down at this moment, as one of the most mysterious deaths in years has occurred right on his doorstep. 
the Honourable Ronald Adair, a friendly bachelor and card, a card player, had been found dead in his room behind lock and key. He had been shot, but seemingly from outside the house as the window was open just a crack. There's no disturbance inside the room at all. Furthermore, he lives at 427 Park Lane, opposite Hyde Park. A revolver shouldn't, could not have reached him from that distance, and there's no sign of a struggle from within. All that was left in the, in the room were some jottings of figures and small amounts of cash on his table, in little piles. Nobody knows how it was done. Watson is curious, of course, and strolls to Park Lane, and he sees a man who he suspects to be a plainclothes detective. He dismisses him, and, to be honest, I'm not even sure why he's mentioned him at all. I don't get that. Anyway, he joins the throng of gawpers outside 427 and, in, in, and inadvertently bumps into a wizened old bookseller, knocking several volumes from his hands. The old man is understandably quite unhappy about this, but is more or less cowed by Watson uh, as he goes off into the street. Watson thinks no more of it and returns to his practice in Kensington. He's barely through the door, though, when the maid tells him that he's got a visitor. He's surprised to see that it's the old bookseller who apologises for being, for being gruff with him earlier. Watson dismisses the incident completely. He says something like, you make too much of a, uh, of a trifle, sir, which I really like and have used myself. But the old man continues uh, to talk to him and to tries to sell him some rare and, to be honest, downright weird books, particularly the one about tree worship. He tells Watson that the gap on the shelf behind him is untidy and needs filling. Watson glances round at the space and is about to interject when the words are plucked from his throat. The old bookseller has removed some of her disguise and revealed himself to be Mr Sherlock Holmes. Watson faints. Holmes quickly gives him some brandy, though I don't know where he's got that from, and apologises for his dramatic reappearance. Once he's regained his composure, Holmes has some explaining to do. A very confused, quite understandable Watson, um, has got several questions to ask, but the main one is how did he get out of those dreadful falls? Holmes, rather smugly, I think, tells him that he was never actually in it. He knew the note from the messenger was a fake and fully expected to see Moriarty appear. As it said in the note, he believed that sacrificing his own life to rid the world of the Napoleon of crime was perfectly justified. He asked the professor who could write a little note and was granted some permission. Granted permission. And then they fought. This is where Baritsu came to his advantage. Holmes is an expert in the art of Japanese wrestling and sent the professor into the chasm below. It was then that he realised that a, a fake death was advantageous, simply in ridding the world of the remainder of Moriarty's crew, who at this point are all under lock and key, which I don't quite understand, but OK. If they believed him dead, they would take liberties and he could remove them anonymously. He seems to have forgotten the Scotland Yard bit, but, uh, but there we are. Um, Maybe two or three of them would have got through or, or, about, or, or, or the case wasn't too strong. I don't know. Anyway, Holmes was keen to hide his footprints so Watson would believe him dead. So he set about climbing the rocky wall rather than retracing his steps. Um, the wall wasn't quite as sheer as Watson believed, which was a bit convenient, but there we are. Um, it was then that a large rock hit him from the ledge above. Holmes looked up to see a confederate of Moriarty's there who had death in his eyes. Holmes has no choice but to run. He climbed down and very nearly fell a few times and was lucky to get away. He made it out of the falls and a week later found himself in Florence, certain that no one in the world knew what had become of me. Apart from the man with the rocks, of course, who uh, could have told the entire criminal fraternity about seeing the dead detective take to his heels, but let's gloss over that. I think we might be discussing that later. 
He then spent two of the next three years in Tibet before trips to, making trips to Mecca, Sudan and France under various names such as Sigerson. He does some work about cold hard derivatives. I won't be reading that book. <laughs> it was only when he learned that one of Professor Moriarty's um, old associates was back in London that he decided to return. Well, that and the Park Lane mystery, which of course he's fascinated by. He then recruits Watson for a dangerous assignment that night. Watson is overjoyed to be heading face first into the fire again, and at 9.30 they're sneaking around the back streets of London like the old days. Holmes is especially keen to ensure he's not being followed, and a few twists and turns later, they enter the backyard of an empty house. It's Camden House, directly opposite 221B Baker Street. Furthermore, the good doctor notices, looks through the window and is stunned again. So he looks through the window at 221B and is stunned again to see Holmes' own silhouette through the blinds. Holmes tells him that it's a wax bust that he had made years earlier. It also moves, which stuns Watson once more. It transpires that Mrs. Hudson prods the thing from the side so not to cast her shadow upon it and make it look active. It turns out he'd returned to, Holmes had returned to Baker Street earlier that day, seemingly to scare the bejesus out of Mrs. Hudson, but also to be seen by one of Moriarty's sentinels. There have been people watching the house for three years. But this time, Holmes and Watson are watching the watchers. They then sit in darkness and silence for a few hours, eerily reminiscent of the vigil in the Speckled Band. At one point, Watson notices two men in the street and mutely brings their attention to, to his companion. Holmes shakes his head and goes back, slightly impatiently, uh, to staring at everyone who passes. Some minutes later, though, Holmes notices a disturbance behind them. Someone has entered the premises and is standing just three feet away. Luckily, the darkness is strong enough to hide them, so they observe the figure crouched by a window. They get a better look at him, though. He is an old man, swarthy, and carrying what looks like a metal pipe. It turns out it's actually part of a gun which he constructs, his eyes never leaving the wax bus from across the street. The man gives a little hum of pleasure as he settles into his shot. He fires, and Holmes and Watson hear the silvery tinkle of broken glass across the street. Holmes is on him in an instant, leaping on his back. The man fights gamely, but Watson smacks him on the side of the head with his revolver, and that does the trick. Holmes sounds his whistle, and two policemen hurry along to join them. One of them is Lestrade, who Holmes gently chides about his recent conviction rate, or lack of it. They are then introduced to Colonel Sebastian Moran, Professor Moriarty's own chief of staff. Moran, of course, isn't best pleased and offers some strong views on Holmes and his character, which are easily laughed at. Holmes asks him how many times had he, an experienced huntsman, tethered a goat to a tree and waited up the same to await a tiger. The principle was exact. Moran then springs at him once more, but is struck down once more too. These people never learn. He's taken away. Holmes examines the gun and tells his astonished audience that he knew von Herder, the blind gunsmith who made it to Professor Moriarty's orders. Holmes then takes the very kind step of insisting that Lestrade alone take the credit for capturing the villain of London's most cunning murder. He's surprised to say the least, particularly as the returning detective doesn't seem concerned about a man shooting at him, albeit at a fake target. Holmes explains that Moran killed Ronald Adair. It's him that's the murderer of London's most vicious crime. Only he and his singular weapon could have killed the young car player from the street. 
Holmes and Watson returned to Baker Street, where their old quarters had been perfectly preserved, save for the bust with the hole in his head. They discussed Moran, and Holmes reads from his legendary index. He describes the life of a war hero, the one who was bound to slide into infamy, and is given a dark name. He says that India grew too hot to hold him, and Moriarty recruited him and spent great sums of money keeping him loyal. He, it was he that who was, the, who was the professor's bodyguard on the trip to the Reichenbach Falls, and he, of course, who was throwing stones at Holmes from above. Holmes explains that he never felt safe while Moran was at large in London, and he could, but he could hardly go to the authorities with no evidence. And then came the Park Lane murder. But why did he kill Ronald Adair? It transpired that Moran was a card cheat and had won hundreds over the years. Adair was Moran's partner on a few occasions and he won great sums of money, including £420, which is actually roughly £58,000 now. But of course, Adair, a good man, knew that these winnings were unethical. His aim was to give the money back to those who had lost heavily, hence the piles of money on the table. Moran could not bear the scandal, so he had to end his life, and that so that he could never be traced. He died at the hand of a first-class shot by an air gun fired at distance. And that concludes The Empty House. There we go. Are we back? We are back. We are back. Excellent. Thank you, Thank you for that. That, was, <laughs> that, um, that took a long while to do, that, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, I wish I'd done it again. But um, that is the empty house and, well, the final problem on the empty house and a little bit of a discussion on uh, the great hiatus as well. It's time to introduce our guest, John. You ready, Carl? Here we go. Let's bring them in. I'm so glad you're there, but I was hoping it wouldn't be an empty room. I, really, I didn't want to see an empty room there. <laughs> can you hear me okay? You can, yes. Splendid. Leslie, are, are you are you loud and vocal there? I am. There you are. Excellent. Thank you for sitting through that. And uh, always great to talk to, to um, issue a piece of writing in front of writers myself. <laughs> that was a little bit nerve-wracking, to say the least. Um, firstly, thank you very much for both of you to, to coming to the show. Um, Leslie, you're an old hand at this because we had a chat about the uh, the five orange pips, and you're the only person so far that you surprised me uh, with one of the opening questions when I always ask Bert, Bert, we're coming to you on this, was did you like the story? And you said no. <laughs> it totally threw me at the time, to be honest. But um, um, did you enjoy this one? Surely everyone, well, everyone likes the final problem in the empty house, surely. Yeah, let's say I like the events. Uh, the stories are so preposterous that uh, uh, they 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 stretch the imagination to say the least. But you know, it's it's good to see Holmes back. Let's put it that way. Yeah. The final problem is, of course, for the first time reader, an immense shock. Um, as as you know, really, he really died. He really, really, <laughs> really dead, died. Yeah. He is dead there. There is no, there is no, well, of course, there are tons of of uh, of, of loose um, threads to be but, picked up. But of course, we don't see the, the body. You know, we don't see the actual body with a nope. bullet hole through the brain or anything like that. Nope. So, but it seems pretty conclusive that he's dead. Um, and so, you know, as I say, the events are uh, are important, but the stories are just 
you know, it's it's very clear that the author was wrapping up his writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there is a little bit of last day at school. To yes. let's 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 throw everyone in. Let's 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 have uh, let's get Mycroft back again. Uh, let's get the old gang together, uh, and and do it through that. Um, but you're new to the show. Well, you're, let's just say you're new to the show in as much as you're in the show. You've been in pretty much every single episode. Yes, I've heard about that. Since, <laughs> since day one. Um, I love the, I've said this before on this show, I love the email you sent me when um, I think we, I sent you the, the copy of the Copper Beaches when you said, I enjoyed it, Carl, but at some point you really did have to start talking about the story. About that. Um, Normally, I would introduce you both, but I don't think I need to. I think it's fairly obvious uh, of who you are. Leslie, one question I'd like to ask you, though, is um, the annotated homes is the Bible for this show. Again, you are quoted on every single show, always uh, uh, in the annotated homes. And obviously, you've you've done the annotated Dracula and uh, and, (laughs) and Lovecraft and and things like that. Do you think there's... I asked this question because John and I are ripperologists, and there's always... A school of thought which says that's it. There is no more information to be found about the the events of ten weeks, one hundred and thirty years ago, and yet there always is. There's always another book. There's always yes. a theory, but there's also other data as well coming up. At, at what point do you think? I mean, have you completed the annotations? Is there, is there anything else you'd like to know more about? Or uh, oh, many things I'd like to know more about. I have one of the books that I pitched, and who knows, it may one day come into print, uh, is uh, the annotated The Lodger by uh, Marie belloc Lowndes. So The Lodger, uh, some of you um, undoubtedly know the Hitchcock film, yep, of course, yep. uh, which has a slightly different ending than the book, has considerably different ending, actually, than the book. Uh, the book was a, a, a very popular book, and the reason I mention it, for those who haven't read it, is it's a thinly disguised um, telling of a story about the Ripper. Yeah. Um, it, the Ripper is never mentioned, but it's about the Ripper, and so I would love to do an annotated edition of that and bring in uh, a lot of Ripperology. Uh, the Holmes-Ripper connection is a fascinating one. Um, my my dear friend Lindsay Fay, uh, to my astonishment, my astonishment only because it was her first book, wrote an incredible book called Dust and Shadow, um, which is Holmes versus the Ripper. And I kept when I read the manuscript, I kept saying to myself, "Oh, she's a beginner. She's got to get this wrong or this wrong or this wrong." And she didn't. She really had studied her Ripperology. Um, but yes, there's always something new about the Ripper and. Uh, and the speculation of Holmes's involvement in it is uh, is always fascinating. It's it's, it's when two two worlds meet, isn't it? And the the lodger's based in John. I'm going to say 38 Batty Street, or is it 34? I can't remember the number, but it's Batty it, Street. Isn't it? It's definitely Batty Street because it's so it's one street away from um, Enrico Street in London, which was Burner Street, uh, where the third victim was killed, and um, it's also just. A handful of doors away from uh, another famous murder of Israel, uh, Israel Lipsky's murder of Muriel Angel. And when I'm in Batty Street, which has been for a while, it's the quietest street in London. I've only seen two people on there ever. And yet in the 1880s, infamous for the, you know, the, 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 the supposed lodger story based on the double events of September 1888. And 
um, the Israel Lipsky murder was so infamous that the word Lipsky became a slur. His surname became a slur as the worst thing you could possibly say to anyone. Obviously, it was a racial slur because it, it was a very um, um, anti-Semitic um, area at the time. Um, so there's, there's always plenty to be, to be, you know, <laughs> ripperology never ends. It will never end. I don't think it ever will. Um, Bert, welcome to the show. Thank you. So many questions. I've, I've got at least 15 about Brian Blessed. <laughs> alone. So uh, my, my beginning with the, the BBC Radio 4 adaptations, which you wrote a ha more than a handful of, and you've written the further adventures as well, um, started with the case of, well, the, from the series was a case of identity. Um, the Radio 4 series is the only one who has done uh, every, well, Clive Merrison is the only, only Sherlock I can think of who's covered every single Sherlock Holmes story. Are there any more? I can't think of. Uh, yes, there are. There's an American company called Imagination Theatre. Oh, who okay. Have, who have done, not only have done the complete canon, they've done the complete canon written entirely by one writer. And that writer was an Englishman called Matthew Elliott, and he continues to write for them. He's written more Sherlock Holmes's, he's written other things as well. Now, they did theirs quite a long time after we did ours. So we proudly say we were the first to do yeah. the complete canon with the same two actors. Well, I, th I think um, everyone's got their, their favourite Holmes and their favourite Watson, and Merrison and, and Williams are definitely mine by a mile. Even so, when I did that, uh, the recap there, when I, I quoted the, the, the letter of the Reckonback Falls, um, it was Clive Merrison, Clive Merrison's voice in my head. It, I was putting the pauses in exactly as, mm. as, you, as you wrote it and as, as it was directed as well. Um, one question I would like to ask you now, and I'm, I'm just basically just abusing my position as host here because I'm a writer myself and um, I've got a few things on the go at the moment. But when you came to choosing the stories or, or you were given the stories by the higher ups, as you say in your book, um, was there a story where, let me put it this way, we have a section here called Watson Watch, where John and I say, what's Watson done in this story? And if you look at the Musgrave ritual or the Glorious Goth, Watson Watch consists of us saying, John sits in a chair, John listens, John writes it down. That's all there is. Is there a Sherlock story which is very, very hard to dramatise in the very meaning of the word dramatise itself? Make it they're, all they're all hard to dramatise. Um taking a story and ripping it apart and putting it back together again isn't easy. Um, mm. However, uh, the, the elements are presented to you. The, I suppose the extreme example of what you're talking about is the lion's mane. Yes. Um, the story doesn't have Watson in at all. No. Um, and it seemed to me to be fun. I mean, if you've got Michael Williams, you don't write an episode without Michael Williams in. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, he would have been annoyed for anything else. Um, so it seems to me to be fun to put Watson into the lion's mane. And if anyone out there has heard the BBC version, I then thought it would be more fun to take everybody else out. Yeah. Except Holmes. So my lion's mane is a two-hander for Holmes and Watson. Um, that was that was fun to do. I don't know that it was harder than any of the more conventional stories. No. I think Sandra's right. It is absolutely amazing um, to that one. They also do something really interesting. This I can remember exactly where I was when I heard that. And just to, just to go back to show how long ago this was, I bought the cassettes, the little sort of double cassette things on either side, and I put them in my Sony Walkman. I really am going back a long way here. And the, the lion's mane starts with 
them going through the play. They're reading the play. Well, <clears throat> Sherlock's actually reading the play to Watson, um, which, of course, they have to act. So they're characters pretending to be actors, and therefore they have, have, to, act, have to act. I'm forced to say this slightly badly. It's yes, my dear, fat, you know, really <laughs> over exaggerates the. Um, so that must have been fun to do in the studio as well. Clive Morrison insisted, and I agreed, that Holmes was a better actor than Watson. So if you listen to it very critically, you can see that Holmes is dealing with the, the play rather better and more fluently. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can actually hear, you can hear him read it. Yeah. Those of us who are a little older than you, Carl, remember listening to the Nigel Bruce broadcast on records. Uh -huh. um, that is to say, L long, long playing 33 and a third LPM, RPM albums uh, that came out sometime in the 70s, as I recall. Really? Hello, eBay. Yeah, <laughs> same thing. I'll be, I'll be straight on to eBay. I, I love the um, I, I love the old radio series with with um, with, with, with Rappone and Bruce in it, and the the host who suddenly starts talking about Petri wine. Halfway through, I, I, I've heard them. Oh, it's it's so wonderfully convoluted. Uh, well, well, my boy, you're the expert on wine here. <laughs> the framing stories are lovely. Nigel Bruce gives his best performances in the little framing stories yep. around the radio shows. Yeah, because there he can be Nigel Bruce. He can be a slightly aging, uh, affable, you know, slightly bumbling um, version of Watson. Yeah. Totally inappropriate for the stories themselves, totally inappropriate for the movies, but for, oh, hello, Mr. whatever, I forget the guy's name, literally not, hello, Mr. announcer, um, come in, have, have a glass of wine, of course it's Petri, you know, blah, 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 and <laughs> they, they can chat about Watson's dogs, and yeah. he, he has well, to be each house, it's, it's beautifully done, it yeah. really is, it's almost a shame when they leave that, go, he says, well, now it's time for me to tell him a story, isn't it, I suppose, and you say, no, 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 let's talk about the puppies some more, you know? <laughs> Well, and it's hard to, I mean, it's just hard to fathom that he did something like 375 stories. Yes. Uh, that's really, and now they weren't all Rathbone, of course. Um, no, no, but, no, it was um, uh, Mr. Rathbone. Uh, uh, Tom Conway there. later um, and uh, others, but uh, yes. And Bruce got top billing after, yeah. after Rathbone yeah. left. It was, we present Nigel Bruce in so-and-so with Tom Conway. It, it, it didn't go as far as Watson and Holmes, but, <laughs> but, but he would have done those. I, I have to ask, we will get to the final problem, everyone. Um, but but uh, he's one of my heroes. So I'm going to tell you a brief story of something that happened to me about 2012. I was working for a renewable energy exhibition and I'd been invited to somewhere near Warwick to give, to go to an opening of, an, of a new something or other. And they invited um, three guests along. We were in the green room, uh, and one, the other person uh, was the local mayor or something, and the other one was Brian Blessed. I heard Brian Blessed two rooms away, just talking to someone about tea. Um, and I got, I, and so the, the Lord Mayor got up and he did the mayor, so I got up, did his talk, etc. And Brian sloped off for a cup of tea in the green room, and I said to my guest, "Can I go and get some tea?" Yeah, yeah, of course you can. I felt a bit sorry for the mayor, but I thought, I'm sorry. When am I going to be here again? So there's me and Brian Blessed in a room together for 20 minutes. I was aware of every single second that, you know, he might disappear at any second. 
So I start talking to him about iClaudius, which is one of my favourite TV programmes ever, and he's the, it, it's one of the greatest performances ever is Augustus. Um, and he's telling me stories about, you know, some people nearly died on the set, et cetera, because they're supposed to be doomed. And um, he, when he plays Augustus, he's not the Brian Blessed you see him as now as the, oh, you know, the big, the big, he's the, the big voice. He's more sort of calm and relaxed because he's in charge of the world and he's sort of quite a placid um, uh, person at that point. The Emperor Augustus uh, sent two of his legions into the Bavarian forests and um, carried eagles. So the two of the legions, they carried the thing with an eagle on it, which is a symbol of Rome. And a man called Quintilius Varus, I've told this story on other podcasts before, um, led those two legions and they were completely torn apart and the eagles were stolen. Augustus didn't give a damn about the legions. Men were completely expendable. But in the middle of the night, Augustus would stand up, according to Suetonius, wake up and shout, Quintilius Varus, where are my eagles? He was so offended that these eagles had gone. And of course, in that scene, in I, Claudius, Brian Blessed goes from placid Brian Blessed to Brian Blessed plus 60. It's huge for the, he screams at it. So I'm talking to Brian Blessed and I'm asking about the scene. He said, yeah, I really enjoyed doing that, et cetera, because I got to you know, go a bit big. And um, I said, Brian, can you, can you do my voicemail for me? So I said, yeah, of course I can do it, no problem at all. So I gave him my phone and he you know, pressed the right buttons. And he said, and I can remember it word for word. It was placid, Brian. He spoke like the Emperor Augustus, which of course he, he looked nothing like at that point. And he said, hello, this is Carl's voicemail. I'm afraid uh, he's not here at the moment. I'm taking a message for him. It's uh, Brian Blessed, the Emperor Augustus. And uh, I'm afraid he can't. Quintilius Varus, where are my eagles? Screamed it. And I thought, I want the world to phone me just as says what happened there. <laughs> I got in the car, I drove from Coventry to London, and I thought, I'll try and listen to the voicemail again, because I was so excited what happened. And I tried it, and it didn't record. And for the first time in my life, I pulled over, sat on a hard shoulder with my head on the steering wheel for maybe 10 minutes. That's such a lost opportunity. But what was Brian Blessed like to work with? You went with him twice, didn't you, on the sign? I I did, yes. He played Jonathan Small in the sign of the four. And he played uh, Henry Henry Wood, is that yeah, right? Henry in Wood, yeah. The Crooked Man. Um, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. You're quite right to highlight the two sides of him. Yeah. I would go further than that. Big Brian Blessed is an act. Yes, yes, Quite I got that. Brian Blessed, Blessed well, yeah. is Brian Blessed. Um, his Jonathan Small is an amazingly subtle performance. Amazingly subtle. Um, and it was wonderful to be in the studio with him. And to, we, I don't normally watch as they record. I'm there, but I don't normally watch what's going on because it's very easy to get fooled into thinking that something is comprehensible uh, in terms of moves and props of, of just the lines, if you can see it. So I normally have my eyes closed, but for Brian Blessed, I watched. And it was just wonderful to see. Clive Merrison found him overwhelming. As, well, I mean, he can go pretty big as well when he wants to. Oh, oh yeah. The I mean, laugh, you know. even, even Placid Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> even Placid Blessed is um, an incredible presence, you know? Clive said to me afterwards, it was like being run over by a whole fleet of buses, um, which kind of does sum him up, yes. Um, and in complete contrast to the Crooked Man, uh, he let go a little bit because the part called for it. Yeah. 
but there's a wonderful not wonderful because I wrote it, but wonderful because of the way they do it, scene at the end between Watson and Wood, just talking about India and about Watson suggests to Wood that he should go and, and yeah. talk to the woman, Nancy. Um, and that is so beautifully played. It I, really I, is. I think the way... I'm sorry, we will be talking about the empty house soon. and <laughs> have a problem. The way that Brian Blessed says the word perhaps... It's just, it's got so much in it. It's, it's, it's regret as much as anything else in there. And it's, it's just wonderfully done. And I, I suppose as you are adapting the stories, you can put little things in to explain certain things. I love the way you got through the elementary, um, going back to Lion's Mane, you know, elementary, my dear, wasn't quite a good line. I've no need to use lines like that, you know, uh, and things like that. But that is, that the, that little scene between Michael Williams and Brian Blessed is probably my favourite moment in BBC Four uh, adaptations because it's just absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, we've got some Brian Blessed fans in here. Everyone's a fan. <laughs> of course, Blessed had another Sherlockian connection. I uh, saw him live in Cats, and uh, we all know that Cats has a significant Sherlockian element. Yep. Um, so he wasn't playing uh, Macavity, of course. He was playing Deuteronomy, but uh, nonetheless. Hmm. And, and, of course, he's in one of the film versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles, yes. playing uh, Laura Lyon's thuggish husband um, with... Now, which version? Is that the, that's the Ian Richardson? I think that is the Ian Richardson one, Ian yeah. Richardson, and I think David Healy is Watson in that, but I'm not sure. Ian Richardson, yes, thank you, Charles. So, yes, um, Almost everyone has a Sherlockian connection somewhere. If you yeah. somewhere, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And in fact, in the I think I've got this right in the BBC, um, uh, Sherlock the, the 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 Benedict Cumberbatch uh, and and uh, Martin Freeman story, um, his father's in it, and and he plays George Burnwell in the BBC adaptation, Radio Four adaptation. I only found that out recently. Oh yes, yeah, um, yeah. Timothy Carlton. Yes, yeah. So he's uh, so, so that. That's, that got that through me as well when I first read. Oh my God! You know the family is obsessed by Sherlock. You can't get away from him. <laughs> You're listening to um, Sherlock Mathers Amberley featuring Brian Blessed at the moment. Uh, <laughs> we can still hear this one day. Is um, there a story you're meant to be discussing? I vaguely remember something about that. <laughs> what? Sorry. Wasn't there a couple of stories you meant to be discussing? I vaguely remember something about it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's been mentioned a few. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Hint taken, let's talk about the final problem. Leslie, it is incredibly far-fetched, but how do you think, uh, uh, well, just as I do, that the writing style changes significantly for this? The reason I say this, I've got a bit of a theory about the whole of the uh, memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, and I know it is just a coincidence, and I said this to Bonnie McBird as well, but I think for the middle of the collection, Things like, um, again, Musgrave Ritual, Gloria Scott. It's their action, but their action from the past, and, you know, the heroes are okay. They're sort of more intelligent, uh, intellectual problems. Rygate Squire is another one as well. And then suddenly he goes big, naval treaty, Greek interpreter, and then the final problem where, well, Sherlock's almost killed twice in this little collection because, of course, he's, um, he's strangled by uh, Alex Cunningham in the Rygate Squires. Um and then suddenly you've got action, and then Watson at his most sombre. Do you think that's a deliberate thing? Is he is he just? 
You know, there are so many interesting ideas. I, I'm fond of the idea that um, the whole thing is sort of invented, um, that this, is, this was patent nonsense. Uh, Moriarty, the dreaded supervillain who is so incompetent um, in this story, uh, I, I like to believe that uh, what really happened was uh, a detente was reached between uh, uh, Moriarty and, and Holmes, uh, a la the John Gardner uh, books. Um, and so this whole thing is made up, and therefore you can explain the different writing style uh, that way. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. As well, I've, I've, I've made some notes about this. Actually. I've also noted the fact that we don't actually meet Moriarty. Right. No one, no one actually sees him, do they? I mean, yeah, no, uh, we, we see him twice. We, we, well, uh, we see you, someone who Holmes says. Well, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. fine. But, but if you accept, accept for a moment the truth of the story, which is very difficult to do, I agree. But um, we, that is to say Watson, sees Moriarty twice, once on Victoria Station, no, three times, once at Victoria Station, once as his special train, his wildly improbable yeah. special train hurtles past in Canterbury, and once in Myringen, yes. What's that? Myringen. Um, <laughs> he sees a, a tall, lank figure hurrying up the, the yeah, mountain yeah, as yeah. he hurries down. Um, so, no, he, he does appear three times. The, the, the famous encounter, the wonderful encounter, is entirely hearsay. Yeah, yeah and, um I'm so reluctant to believe that that didn't happen. Perhaps it did, perhaps it didn't. But it's um, some of the best writing in the whole canon. And interestingly, uh, from my point of view, it's some of the few examples of writing that I was able to lift straight off the page and yeah. put into a script. Mostly um, literary dialogue, you can't just lift it and give it to an actor. You have to trim it. You have to yeah. uh, lose a lot of it. That meeting, that incredible meeting, is largely word for word Doyle in the BBC version. There's no reason. I mean, even even Les's crackpot theory, um, you could still have that meeting. Yes, that's that true. Meeting, that, that meeting could be genuine. Yes. I, I, I think it's absolutely wonderful. And I, I love just how almost muted it is in terms of two great minds meeting each other um not particularly physical people or they could be when they want to be but it's i, I love the idea of almost that um when you when you say i can't remember the actual line but it's it's something like you know whatever i'm about to say is already past your mind you stand firm absolutely it's something like it, it's you know are you going to join me or am i going to have to kill you or you're going to have to kill me <laughs> it's and very it's, polite it's, it's an extremely it, polite it's, it's 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 manners um, it really is. Very Victorian. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's that's just incredible. I'm coming back to whether Moriarty exists or not, just to um, fan the flames a little bit further. Does what... It could just be someone being Moriarty because Holmes said so. I, I'm not sure I completely agree with all the conspiracy theories about this, although I do love Les's crackpot theory. I really like that. Um, it could just be a man. But the only problem I've got with Moriarty is, as a genius is he missed the train. Some genius, said it's so, it's train. so unbelievable, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, he missed the train. His method of disposing of homes is to get someone to throw a brick at him. Yeah? Yes, uh, please. Like, Twice. Fairly <laughs> unlikely. Um, and I can't remember now if this is in the story, but I imagine it is. But certainly in, the, in my script, Watson says, 
excuse me, this man is an international criminal genius and he hires someone to throw a brick at you and, and no, Holmes I, sort of immediately shuffles off onto something else. I, you, um, you, you say that in the, in the BBC version as yeah. well. Because yeah. he, he almost, Michael Williams almost chuckles. Yeah. Well, and then he takes on, I mean, he, he personally attacks Holmes at the, at the falls. I mean, <laughs> come that on. is unlikely, isn't it? Yeah, so I had to put in uh, another exchange to explain that. I, um, I think I, I can't I can't remember the exact words, but Watson says, um, "So, so this man is is just pure intellect in, in almost a parallel to where you are." And yeah. Holmes says, "Yes, until his logic decides, until his logic tells him that the time for intellect is past and the time for action has come." Yeah, and that was a desperate attempt <laughs> to explain why these two intellectual giants suddenly hurl yeah. themselves at each other. Exactly. There's also. So he misses, and, and, and it also, I mean, the empty house is equally baffling. Oh, yeah. uh, so it, you know, it's it's uh, they're of a they're of a pair. I mean, it, if you if you uh, if you discard the final problem, then you must also discard the empty house. The explanation of what really happened is ludicrous, um, and uh, this whole business about uh, sort of that Moran was above the rocks, but he didn't tell anybody that Holmes was alive. <laughs> For three years, you know, uh, etc. So it, it probably wasn't that important to him, right? Yeah. <laughs> At the time, also, he Moriarty is as purely as the brain. Um, he's got one of the greatest murderers in Europe as his henchman, and says, "I'll take care of this one. I'm a professor." I don't get that. Right. But, 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 but Moran, just be handy. Be there just in case so you yeah. can throw rocks. You, you can miss, miss You him. can throw rocks at home. Don't bring your air gun. Uh, uh, ah, yes, the air gun. Why? Now, this, this links to a theory I have. Why does Holmes mention air guns in the final problem? They're never mentioned again anywhere in the story. Yeah. It's only in the empty house. Now, I have a very sneaky theory. That, that Doyle was planning the empty house at the time he wrote the final problem. I don't think he ever really intended to kill Holmes. That's why the body isn't found. I think for a strand like that, a strand, excuse me, but for something like that just to be dropped in for no reason, I mean, I know Doyle can be sloppy, he can be inconsistent, but yep. he very rarely mentions a plot point that never actually comes to something in the story. I think he knew perfectly well he was going to bring him back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to be leaping around both tales here. We're going to treat them both separate rather than just doing a linear way. Um, I'm equally confused at the close uh plain clothes detective outside have put 47 park lane in the empty house who's mentioned by watson and then never mentioned again oh he only says that he thinks he was a plain he he is, but because he because his back. theory is so preposterous yeah um which is wonderful i mean any other plain clothes detective or any other private detective is obviously ludicrous ludicrously useless compared to holmes um, oh, I would love to know. I, I, I debated whether or not to write that scene, to, to write the uh, the preposterous theory, you know, about, I don't know what it would have been. I suppose um, he's trying to do him a go throw a MacGuffin into the things. Oh, but well, what about the strange man? There's also links that it might be Barker from um, um, uh, yes. Ty Cullerman. Oh, I think there you're, you're 
allowing uh, Sir Arthur a bit too much uh, planning and insight and cleverness. I don't think that at all, unless you're talking outside of the, the actual writing of the canon, in which case I suppose it could be. It could have been, yeah, just easily. Well, well there the, must have been more than one plainclothes detective, hmm. but... Uh, yes. But the, the, the Aragon idea, uh, Bird, is an interesting one to me. I mean, I, I think that great writers sometimes have elements in stories that they can't really explain. Um, this came up to me when I was um, uh, annotating uh, The Sandman. Uh, for with Neil Gaiman, and unlike Arthur Conan Doyle, I was able to actually talk to Neil. Huh. Conan Doyle was much more difficult to, to talk to. Um, so, um, and I there's a there's a scene in an early uh, story in which we see in the background. It's actually mentioned in the script um, a, a glass globe with a, what looks like some buildings inside. It's sort of a snow globe. I'm not sure what you call them in England. But um, and, and it is not at all part of the plot of that particular story. Fifty issues later, that snow yeah. globe becomes a very important element of the story. Um, and I asked Neil about it, and he just said it felt like it needed to be there. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, actually. That is. It, it does something quite similar. We, we've just been talking about being able to treat it with, with Bonnie, um, where, as Watson is wont to do, he'll, he'll refer to cases that he hasn't published yet, or you know, the, the, the country, the, the world is not ready, etc. And he mentions the second stain, and eleven years later, Conan Doyle wrote it. Yeah. So maybe that is a. Um, sometimes you just like a title and think at some point I'm going to write something about that. I've done one myself actually. I'm. I, um, when I lived in Hackney uh, in the 90s, I had a, a post-it note on my laptop with the words um, shop-bought cynicism on it. And I like the idea where you could go and buy emotions from things like that. I never did anything about it. I reckon that's about 25 years in the in the future before I actually get around to writing that thing. So think about shop-bought shop cynicism. Um, I will just say, just, for, just to complete this, um, that not only does Moriarty miss the train, when Holmes says... To Watson, he, this man is on the intellectual level as myself. He will engage a second train, and yet he doesn't think about stopping the train at Canterbury. How does he not see that? There's why, well, why, why should he? As far as he knows, they they didn't get out at Canterbury. They did, they went straight through. But the surely doctor. he'd think he'd, he'd make contingencies for that. I know we can hardly ring ahead. Dear Sebastian, can you make sure you go go to Canterbury and see if this train gets there? But um, I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not following this. Um, but, Holmes and Watson's ostensible plan is to get on the train of Victoria, go to, Vic uh, go to Dover and get yep. on the boat. Yeah. Yep. Um, as far as Moriarty is concerned, that's what they do. Why should, why should Canterbury figure in his, his thinking? I, 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 think, I think what Carl is saying is if Holmes was smart enough to preempt Moriarty um, engaging a special, oh. Moriarty would be smart enough to realise that Holmes would preempt him doing that and then would therefore get, get off of Canterbury. Um, I think is what Carl's trying to say there. <laughs> right, yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Other okay. evidence of the fictionality of the story. So. <laughs> you're, you're going in circles, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, the, the, the chess moves, three moves ahead, with four moves ahead. Yeah, right. Bert, I, I have a question for you. Did, did you ever consider writing some stories in the hiatus? No. No, because they wouldn't have had Watson in them. 
Yeah. Um, well, they could have. <laughs> oh no, no, no! You see, one of the one of the constraints of doing those shows for the BBC is that we were not warned is the wrong word. We were advised not to depart too drastically from the established canon. Right. I can put Watson into the lion's mane, no problem. I can change an ending if it works better on radio with a changed ending, no problem. I can't have Watson knowing that Holmes is still alive during the high yeah. yeah. That would be a step too far. Was that the case with the further adventures as well? No, there were no constraints on the further adventures. Oh, okay. Having said that, it's now too late occurred to me that I could have done parallel stories with Watson. Yeah. Yes, yes, and that's what I was thinking. Holmes in Tibet or wherever. Um, that would have been an interesting thing, uh, but no, it never occurred to me. And you are going to be and uh... <laughs> uh, no, that's yes, never occurred to me. I, I, I want to say one more thing about the improbabilities in both stories. I think it's a measure of how good Doyle is that the first time you read them, you're so caught up. Oh, in the narrative. absolutely, and absolutely. not necessarily just the first time. It never, excuse me. I beg your pardon. <clears throat> it never occurs to you that there are holes in the story. It never occurs to you that Moriarty doesn't go back to London. Of course he does, um, but it's never mentioned. It never occurs to you that Holmes reveals himself in London in the, the empty house to all kinds of people as himself, um, but still maintains his disguise with Watson. Well, I, I think I, that's very well said, Bert. I think the stories are so emotional. Yes. The first time, especially the first time you read them. For me, almost every time I read them, yes, you get caught up in the emotions of the stories and who cares about this other stuff. This other stuff is a fun game. It has nothing to do with the stories, really. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't even notice... And this is a, something that isn't often remarked on in my experience. You don't even notice that the final problem is unique in that it doesn't contain a case. There's no, no. mystery in it's the final chase. problem at all. It's just a chase. Yeah, I, I think it's a great shame. Um, I bow to no one in, in my admiration for John Hawksworth, who developed the Granada series with Michael mm. Cox. But John Hawksworth, who knows why, felt it necessary to put a case into the final problem. And it's a fairly ridiculous case involving, um, what's the word, uh, forgeries of the Mona Lisa That's that she's right, selling, yeah. um, Moriarty sells. And in order to get that in, Hawksworth cuts all of the lovely, lovely stuff, the quiet, contemplative stuff between Holmes and Watson in Meiringen in the Swiss evening when they talk about, you know, um, I don't think my life has been in vain yeah. and all that, that glorious stuff. And it's yeah, all gone from Granada, and it's such a pity. And I well, but Hawksworth also, keep in mind, Hawksworth also felt it necessary to introduce Moriarty far earlier in the series. Yeah. Uh, he introduced, he's in, he's in the Red-Headed League, is that right? Yes, he is, yeah. yeah. Yes, they, they did that quite deliberately, I and mean, it's a shame. One of the strengths of Moriarty is that he's not omnipresent at yeah. all. Um, he's not even omnipresent in the final problem. Um, one of the, the sadnesses about a lot of pastiche writing is that everybody wants to use Moriarty. Yeah. And it weakens the character. It Including, really we've mentioned this before with, with, with our friend Neil. Um, 
that um, the BBC TV series, he's, he's pretty much in, he's in, he's in everything he's not even supposed to be in. He's in Hound of the Baskervilles, hmm. albeit as a hallucination. Um, when you know when he when he's been trapped in in the laboratory, um, and I've, I've made this point before um, uh, from the original Doctor Who series, where once they came up with Davros, Davros is in every single Dalek story, so you lessen the impact of Davros. Yeah, absolutely, because you know A he's in it, B he's not going to die, so there's the drama gone straight away. And we 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 probably should talk about you know why Moriarty's in the the Valley of Fear and Watts has never heard of him. Um, we had someone on the chat who said it now, it might have been Bonnie, um, that it is just a literary device. So Watson's saying, I've never heard of him, exposition. Yes, yes. We'll talk about that. I, I imagine that's the only thing we can come up with. But, but you know, even, even as much as we love Doyle, he does, he was a little bit shaky on a few things. I mean, we haven't mentioned that uh, the good professor's um, brother is also James. called James. And yeah. the other brother, who's a station master. Yes, is he called James as well? The yeah, James? Well, it's, I don't think that's explicit. It's is it not? Okay, well, I picked their part. Yeah. I, I know people have suggested that, hey, you got two, you might as well have three, you know. I think... I, I, it, it only really, because I've I read it again, obviously, to, 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 for, for this, it was only in the annotator times that I realised that he's not actually named in the in the final problem. It's just, he doesn't have a proper name, but his brother is James Moriarty, and later on he's called... Uh, One of the reasons, I think, for... Um, the, the mistakes for the um, not anachrony. I can't think of the right word. One of the reasons why Doyle is is not consistent with things like that is that we think of the canon. Yeah. Nice, neat, compact set of stories, and novels, two volumes or several volumes, whichever version you happen to have. But in practice, of course, there's something like forty years between yes. the first story. And the last story. Absolutely. Of course, there are inconsistencies. I mean, yeah. it would be amazing. Unlike, I assume that you had, um, as as in television, a Bible. Uh, um, uh, we sort of. Um, I I pushed very hard. I pushed moderately hard for us to do the stories in canonical chronological order, because I thought that would be fun. Um, it would have been incredibly difficult to do. Because you you mean publication order? No, we, we did them in publication order, almost. Um, the BBC held back the Hound of the Baskervilles for a big finish at the very end. Mm. Everything else was in publication order. So Study in Scarlet, The Sign of the Four, The Adventures, The Memoirs, The Return, The Case Book, His Last Bow, The Valley of Fear, uh, The Hound. That was how we did it. I wanted to do studying Scarlet first and then work out a chronology or nick a chronology, whether it's, uh, you know, the Klinger chronology, the, uh, the Baron Gould chronology. Baron Gould, whatever, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Um, and of course, it, it would have been totally impractical. So uh, it didn't last long, the idea, but it would have been fun. It would have been fun. You know, in, in television, as I, what I was alluding to is it's oh, very sorry, common. I, I didn't ask your question. <laughs> Right, to create a Bible that no, sort no, of is there we, for the writers to use that, that sets down the rules about no, who's who and what their relationships are and all that, because who can remember? Yeah, we, mean, um, we, we had a preliminary meeting um, with me, uh, the head of radio drama, and the producer director of the first series of short stories. And we bashed out, um, not a Bible exactly, I think it was three, eight, four pages of guidelines, um, Holmes would use drugs, Watson would object, they would both smoke, 
all the kind of things that we thought might prop up. Um, one of the things I lost was that I wanted to specify no first person narration from Watson at all, um, because I don't like it and because it can be so clunky. Uh, unfortunately, some of the other writers who came in loved first person narration and used it as a very, not cheap, but an easy way to dramatize. It is very easy to dramatize a story badly by putting the, the third person stuff into the voice of an narrator into Watson and just giving the dialogue to actors. Um, I've seen through sent this away. Um, furious with you. Yeah, absolutely. No, um, <laughs> so, no, no, I, I was, I was, I was fetching a book. Uh, oh, 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 right. Get, oh, right. Yes. Uh, Michael Cox's book, yeah, which, which tells, I think, sort of what they did for those yeah, who yeah, yeah. There, there care is, about this sort of thing. There are pirate copies of their Bible in existence. I don't know um, anyone who actually has one, but they did, they did get out. And yeah, it did, we, what we did was very similar. Um, habits, characteristics. But you must remember that radio uh, works on a very, very low budget. Radio drama is more expensive than anything else on radio, but radio drama is peanuts compared to television. Yeah. And we didn't have a script editor whose job it would have been to oversee a Bible and ensure continuity. The nearest thing we had to a script editor was me getting the odd phone call from the producer saying, so-and-so writer has done this. Is that right? It doesn't feel right. And I was able to say, no, it's certainly not right. Do this instead. Um, all for free. I might add, I did it. Um, <laughs> So that was the nearest we got. Um, there were, no, I mean, there, there were guidelines as to how to approach the stories. They didn't have to necessarily be linear in the same way as the stories are linear. They didn't have to be, um, I see from my notes that it was on the 3rd of January, 1876, wow. that yeah. so-and-so turned up. They didn't have to be, a client arrives, a client tells a story, then we have the investigation. Um, much more fun, much more dramatic to do something different to that. Um, we were told by very high ups at the BBC that if the end of a story wasn't satisfactory, we could change it. No one actually went far enough as far as to change the identity of a murder or anything, or I, su I suppose <laughs> in, in the final problem, we could have had, um, you know, neither of them got killed. Um, we, could, we could have had a little parallel story of, Holmes climbing up the cliff in one place and Moriarty climbing up the cliff in another place. That would have been fun. That would have been he too He thinks fun. I'm dead, Sebastian. He thinks I'm dead, Watson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would have been fun. But no, you, you, you can't go that far. Well, what, 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 let what, me what, ask about... Um, uh, so I, I know that uh, Carl and John know I've been the technical advisor for a, a number of Sherlock Holmes-related projects. And um, one of the... Mm, one of the pills you must swallow as a technical advisor is that your advice is often, uh, you get a nice pat on the head and told thanks very much, but we're going to do it exactly the opposite way. <laughs> oh, yes, uh, yes. And so on. So did you have that experience? Were there things that you wanted to do that the producers said, no, we want to do something completely different? No, no. One of the great, great strengths of radio drama, BBC radio drama, is that it's very, very script centered it's very very writer centered um it was very very unusual indeed for one of the producer directors to say to me i want you to change that and if they did it was always because they thought it didn't work dramatically not because they didn't like it 
Yeah. Um, I, I, the best example I can think of off the top of my head was in the Blue Carbuncle. Now, without actually playing you the ending, it's difficult to explain this, but in the Blue Carbuncle, um, the case is over um, the guy whose name I can't remember is freed from prison and back to his family, and Holmes and Watson are alone in the street. John, you're on. Sorry? Sorry John, John is my annotated, um, my own annotated Holmes on Wikipedia. I can't remember his name. All right. Um, Whose name are we after? Uh, Blue Carbuncle. Is it James? John, <laughs> John, 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 John the Plumber. John, John the plumber. plumber. That's right. Horner. No, no. Horner. Horner. It is yes. Horner. You're right. It is Horner. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and Holmes and Watson are in, in the street and they say goodbye and they part. And Patrick Rayner, the director, he said to me, no, 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 he said, that's not right. We can do so much more with that. Uh, do, do it better, he said, in effect. And I wrote what turned out to be quite a nice emotional scene for Michael, um, where Watson doesn't want Holmes to be alone and Holmes doesn't want to be alone, but neither man can say that to each other yeah. because it's Victorian England and because it's too personal thing to say. And they say it in subtext and it ends with Holmes inviting Watson back to Baker Street for a very late dinner. Uh, and it's Christmas Eve, I changed the times of it to, yeah. to, to have it run up to Christmas day. And that got um, some very nice reactions from the audience that scene. And it wouldn't have been there at all if it not for the director. But in the sense of... Interesting, because, of course, Hawksworth similarly changed the ending, not the same way, but changed it to add a scene of the reconciliation uh, of Horner with his family, who yeah. otherwise, in the story, in the canon, almost just sort of like, oh, yeah, well, he'll get out. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's awful. Um, I, I, saw, I saw another one, the end of The Solitary Cyclist. Um, I'd, I'd done it the same as in the story, where, where the girl um, who's... Violet. Sorry? Violet. Violet, Violet Hunter. Um, the, the girl is upstairs feeling Victorianly faint, and the men are downstairs and they resolve the Rain whole fever. Um, And again, it was Patrick. He, he said to me after the first draft went in, he said to me, oh, no, 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 no. He said, she's got to confront him. The whole core of the story is that the girl has got to confront the man who's led her on, who she started to fall in love with, uh, who betrayed her. Um, and I said, okay. And I brought her downstairs and we had this wonderful scene between, oh, it's terrible. I can't remember the lady's name. Dennis Quilly as the man. And Susanna Harker. Her up because she deserves to be told. Susanna Harker. Have her name. It's Susanna Harker. Was it? Thank you. Yeah. Susanna yeah. Harker and Dennis Quinney. Um, and they had a lovely scene, which they, oh, thank you, Leslie, um, which they played beautifully and which ended the show properly and dramatically in a way that the story ends perfectly well for a story, but doesn't end perfectly well for a drama. Well, it's, it, it is a huge difference between radio and, and film, or at least BBC radio and film, where in film, my experience is the producers actually said to me at one point, oh, we don't want to bother the writers with this change. They get so invested in their work. <laughs> yes, the, the script is a commodity in film. Yeah. And increasingly, I'm afraid, in television, but certainly in film. In, in film, if a script comes in and they don't like it, the impetus always is to say, I don't like this script. Let's get a new writer in to fix it. They never say, um, 
let's go back to the original writer and give him a chance to fix it. Uh, if you're a canny writer in Hollywood, you have it in your contract that at least the first rewrite has to be done by you. But that's easily got over if you're a producer because they just say, well, the second rewrite's no good either. So let's uh, we go to someone else. Um, that's why you see these endless lists of writers on movies. That's why writers go to the Writers Guild of America and um, take out lawsuits for their credits and, and go to arbitration to decide who wrote what. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible area. And although I would love to have written a movie, I still would love to write a movie, um, I'm very aware that I would be treated in a very different way to the way I'm used to being treated at the BBC. Well, the compromises are interesting. One of my one of my favorite stories is about uh, the first Downey film, where there's a scene, the camera dollies up to the outside of Holmes's residence, and we see a glass globe hanging there that says on it two two one B. Oh, and I and I said to the producers, you know, this is wrong, and you can't. It wouldn't have the B on the on the outside of the building like that. It would have been inside. It's the apartment number. And I said, well, you know. It's the public expectation that everybody uh, knows it's 221B. Now, interestingly, in reading um, our friend, Bert, our friend Kim Newman's, uh, one of his collections of stories about uh, the Diogenes Club, he has a scene in which uh, Charles Beauregard, his, his uh, primary sort of James Bond type agent, is hired as a technical advisor for the John Barrymore film. Uh -huh. in the 1920s. And there is an identical situation where the outside of the building says 221B and Charles has an argument with the film producer and says it needs to be 221. And I emailed Kim and I said, did, did you make that up? He said, yeah, it just seemed to me to be something that would have happened in Hollywood. And I said, well, let me tell you, Kim, it, it did. <laughs> There's an easy answer to that though. Um, Watson must have had Mrs. Hudson add a B onto the door so clients could find the house easier because they were going past yeah. it and they were looking yeah. for what, the number what B. What you want is a crowd outside <laughs> all the time, 24 hours a day. There's um, a, there's right. a, well, there's totally not the case. There's a wonderful moment in the Granada Creeping Man. Do I mean the yeah. Creeping Man? Where um, Charlie Kay, I think, plays the professor, and Holmes gives him his card, and Charlie Kay goes, 221B, Baker Street, with great disdain. <laughs> and he's saying, you know, um, it's, it's only- You a live in a boarding house. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the, actually, your, your suggestion about the crowd leads to a whole other uh, subject about which I've written and which I'm disappointed has not gotten more attention. I, I wrote a piece for the Baker Street Journal uh, um, oh, 10 years ago at least called What Do We Really Know About Sherlock Holmes? Um, in, in which I, I, the history of that piece is that I, I was, wanted to write, you know, this sounds really pretentious, but I wanted to write something really important. I wanted to write a piece that laid out what I thought of as the seven pillars of Sherlockian wisdom. And so I was focused in the article on sort of the rock, the bedrock fundamental things that we cannot possibly dispute about Sherlock Holmes. And then from there, you know, one can build out other theories. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized how little 
very, 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 very little bedrock um, there is. And if you, if you look at it in practical terms, for example, uh, it, would, would any of these stories have been published? Can you imagine being a client who wants to hire a private detective? Yeah. And the first thing that you know, and, and what you know right away is, by the way, you're, that confidentiality agreement, it's <laughs> going to be published within a few months, the details of your case. Now the names will be changed so that only your good friends will recognize you, <laughs> <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. So was, was his name really Sherlock Holmes? Was there really a Dr. Watson? Clearly not, because that would have violated all those confidentiality things and so on. So, you know, the idea that they, were, they wanted crowds crowding around 221 is, yeah. is exactly the opposite of what they would have wanted. Yeah. Um, and so, yes. Yes. Philip Jose Farmer wrote a novel um, involving Holmes, Watson and... Uh, Lord Greystoke, yes. in which Holmes and Watson are called something completely different because those are their real names. And one of the, like there's that. a subsidiary female character who, who narrates the, the novel, and she says, it's so hard now to think of them as Holmes and Watson and not as, oh, but I shouldn't give their real names. Um, so that's <laughs> the, the adventure only... of the peerless peer, by the way. Thank you very much. Yes, that, that's it. That's the only instance I can think of where um, the, the question of are they really Holmes and Watson? Did they really live in Baker Street? You know, Clearly not. Madness uh, lies that way, I think. I, I know in, the, in, in that the film that was out um, a couple of years ago, Mr. Holmes, I, I know they, they addressed the 221B thing straight away, saying, you know, it's opposite to where he lives, and he just stands at the window and laughs at people standing outside, <laughs> which I think is probably the, a nice way of doing it. Ah, oh, thank you, Madeline. That's interesting. Is everybody seeing these comments, or is it just? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Oh, right. oh, sorry. Good. Yeah. Also, most of them are old guests. Yeah. Oh, just to uh, just to let people know, if that anyone does want to ask a specific question, um, you know, please feel free to post in the chat, and uh, we we can you know try and uh, answer any questions, and we'll read them aloud as well for anyone who's listening back um, when this gets released to the podcast. So. Yeah, absolutely. We should we should probably go back to the empty house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, have we actually? Well, we are. Have we? Uh, well, I, I, I know. I know. Bert also wanted to discuss. I know, not Bert. Sorry, Les wanted to discuss the great hiatus. Uh, he mentioned the um, as well when we had our little. Um, yes. Well, so it, it's really the same question um, that we've been talking about with the final problem in the empty house, which is, do we believe a word of it? No, that's gone for straight no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. I mean, lesser um, Tibet as a whole then was just about impenetrable to a Westerner. Um, Lassa was more than impenetrable. And to get a hold of the head Lama, whether you spell him with one L or two, yes, was yeah. miraculous. I mean, the thought that Holmes, however good a disguise he adopted, or if, if he didn't by that stage, just strolled up and spent some time studying Buddhism with the head Lama is um, hard to swallow, let's say. And also, he's there for two of the three years. The majority of the time of the Great Hiatus, he's in Tibet. Mm -hmm. And then he seemingly does a tour of Norway and France and looking at coal tar derivatives. What are coal tar derivatives? I've absolutely no idea. That was going to be my next question. I will, I will, I will have a look now. So where John comes in. I thought it was early research for the cigarette industry, but yes, I'm perhaps wrong. I think, it's, I, I think it's something to do with plastics. I, I think coal tar derivatives are a sort of early early version of, of plastics. They were 
working their way through to that. But I may be a colorless, um, a colorless flamber liquid obtained from petroleum or coal tar used as a solvent for gums and lacquers, and then, um, yeah, yeah, byproduct reduction. Um, yes. A matter uh, of consuming interest to Sherlock Holmes, you just uh, uh, As I said in, in the um, in the opening video, I, I won't be reading that work. <laughs> I think you know I, oh. I, can, I can get on with forty-two types of tobacco, but well, you know. <laughs> also used to treat skin conditions as well, because I know that you can oh. get uh, coal tar shampoos for dandruff and coal tar oh, okay. soaps for psoriasis and stuff. Oh, well, there, you there you go. Maybe Holmes had bad dandruff or psoriasis. <laughs> Or he knew he was going to be dealing with the uh, Blanche patient, you know, the, yeah. the uh, Blanche soldier at some point just, and wanted to be ready. in case there's a leprosy um, right. yeah. coming on Watson. Very investment opportunity. Yeah, Patrick went right there. Um, I, I think my favourite pastiche oh, um, about the Great Hiatus um, has got to be the, the Cthulhu case books, uh, which has Holmes and Watson... Um, are fighting um, Lovecraftian monsters and uh, demons <laughs> and elder gods and stuff like that in the uh, in the Great Hater. So there was a question flashed up then that I think was for me, but it's gone away again. I didn't see who who wrote it. Was it my idea to make Holmes more Buddhist after the Empty House? That's from Sandra um, has asked yeah. that. Oh, thank you, Sandra. Um, and yes, it was. Um, there are hints in the stories, in the later stories, of his personality having changed. I mean, the drugs disappear in the later stories, we know. Um, but I, I thought that was a nice thing to, to go for. And I looked all the time for ways of cohering the canon, which is not actually a particularly coherent body of work. No. So making Holmes more aware of mysticism, of um, things Zen, he talks occasionally to Watson about, you know, um, mis uh, ancient beliefs, which he never does before. And that seems, I made him a vegetarian in one story. No one, no one picks up on that at all. Um, uh, that seems to, be, that seems to be a reasonable main. thing to do. Sorry? The lion's mane. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, well done. Did you not not that, that I'm a fan of anything, Bert, but... Uh, <laughs> um, so that seemed reasonable to me, to do that. Yeah, because Holmes always had quite a bohemian um, yes, yes. outlook on things, and Buddhism does seem to go along with bohemianism and Zen and things like that, doesn't it? So but, but Leslie's point is very, very good. There is very little bedrock to Holmes. I mean, we know from his own mouth, and they, even then, that may not be true. You know, my ancestors were country squires. Uh, Veneer and all that sort of thing. My yeah. sister was the daughter of Vernet or whatever she was. Yeah. Um, Vegetarian at Simpsons. No, 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 this just was somewhere else entirely. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I mean, we know that he has a brother, if he does. What's the pastiche where Mycroft is actually an actor engaged to... Uh, oh, that's oh, the Dibden, isn't it? Is that the Dibden? No, it's, it isn't. It's uh, something else. But Mycroft is a, a, an actor engaged by Holmes to fool Watson. Um, quite a good story, that. Uh, so, and, and, and I revealed the recent uh, article that Mycroft was actually a woman. Ah, interesting. What evidence did you um, bring to bear on this? Um, his reclusiveness, uh, I mean, it's the history, sort of how he got to London, his reclusiveness, his 
his uh, isolation. I mean, he was passing and uh, he didn't want, he, she didn't want anybody to know that she was a woman. And uh, so that explains the whole Diogenes Club, you know, sort of hermit-like lifestyle of Mycroft. And it explains Holmes's remarks about a sister. Yeah. Holmes's remarks about his sister. Yes. In he the says at one. Yes, he he uh, he says at one point he doesn't he wouldn't wish something for a sister of mine. Oh, that's oh, you're uh, you're wasted oh. ice there. Let's copper. <laughs> <laughs> it's copper beaches. Yes. Um, about the governess going to uh, see Rue Castle. Okay, so we we've had um, Holmes is a theory. Uh, Holmes is a woman, a theory. Watson is a woman. No. Rex Stout, I think. Now Mycroft's a woman. Who else have we got left? Um, oh, someone else. Yeah, Charles says Sigmar and oh, that Mycroft idea. Um, but you're right. You're right with the rest of it. There is very little solid bedrock to build on. Um, deliberately so, I think. I mean, that wasn't the point of the stories. <laughs> you know, I have Doyle wasn't interested in no. giving the man a history and a background. He, I oh, mean, he, he does it. He does it for Watson. Yeah, he does it for Watson because Watson is the central character of the stories. Watson is the audience point of view, obviously, but Watson is is the one who makes the journey through the canon far more so than Holmes does. Holmes does progress, but Watson far more so. Um, I, 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 I totally got bored with that. <laughs> And 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 I mean, sort of. Once he gets rid of Mary Morstan, I think Watson is as thin a character as Holmes. Uh, we it, maybe there's a wife. We don't know. We don't know anything <laughs> about his. You know. Uh, so I mean, I think that um, post Mary Morstan, once again, the the author of these stories was just interested in sort of getting the record out there, yeah. uh, making making the money and moving on, and couldn't be bothered with. Uh, depending on which theory you have, either self-revelatory uh, uh, material about his own life or inventing uh, a, a backstory for Watson. He just couldn't be bothered. We're, we're I, sorry, we're presuming that it's, it's um, when Watson says that he's bereaved in the empty house, that it is Mary he's talking about. Because he doesn't actually make it plain. No. He just says that he's, he's bereaved and, yeah. uh, as well as Sherlock. I gave her a nice deathbed scene. It was lovely. Dr. Pendle. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if we only had a study in Scarlet and the sign of the four and the adventures, would we all be sitting here talking about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And not have the Bruce Partington plans. I don't think I could live in a world like that. <laughs> oh, my word. Now, that is an excellent... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to read another question, because I, it, I think, to me, one of the bedrocks of... Um, the stories is the friendship between Holmes oh, absolutely. and, yes. and yes. there's a question from, from uh, Joe Ass, um, apologies mispronouncing the name there, um, which I'll read out for the benefit of any listeners who aren't uh, watching the video. Uh, so my question is about the development of Holmes and Watson's friendship in Bert's uh, Bird Call series. In my view, many adaptations struggle to convey this well, portraying it either as a rather cold relationship or as developing friendship. But in a highly uncanonical way, uh, uncanonical way, sorry, uh, the American TV series Elementary comes to mind in this respect. 
One of the things I've long appreciated about your series is that Holmes and Watson really develop a true friendship throughout the episodes and do so in a very subtle and authentic way, making fun of each other, getting angry with one another in a way only true friends can, making remarks that they only understand, etc. all the while remaining entirely within the spirit um, if not the letter of the canonical stories. Um, that is uh, quite an achievement. I've never seen any other adaptation. Was this something you paid particular attention to? And can you tell us something about working with Clive Merrison and Michael Williams on this, please? Who, who was it asked that question, Joas? Uh, jo um, I think, is the... Uh... Joas. Okay, yeah. well, jo Joas, thank you very much for that question. That's a great question. Um, yes, it was something that I and through me via the directors, the other writers, paid enormous attention to. Yeah. Um, we were lucky in one sense in that we had for the short stories 45 minutes of uh, the slot was 45 minutes. They, all the previous radio versions in the UK were 30 minutes, sometimes 25 minutes, which barely gives you time to do the case. Yeah. Um, I, I fought very hard when we were first talking about the shows. Um, we were asked 30 minutes or 45, and I, I was very, very adamant, as far as you can be with the BBC, that, that 45 would be better because it gives the stories time to breathe. It gives the stories time for the characters to have a life outside the cases. Very important. The developing friendship was based entirely on the existing friendship of Clive Merrison and Michael Williams, who were very good friends, who'd been friends for years and years and years. And I started off, the first scripts I wrote um, were before either man was cast. Yeah. So the early scripts are a little bit sort of generic in that sense. Once they were cast, once I'd sat around with them chatting in between recording scenes, um, once I sat with them in the green room and listening to them um, bantering backwards and forwards in exactly the same way that I tried to write Holmes and Watson doing, then all of that started creeping into the stories. The rhythms of Holmes and Watson started to become the rhythms of Clive and Michael. Um, and I think with two other actors, it would have developed very differently. Um, I was very, very pleased with their casting, delighted with the casting. Um, and I tried to keep going with it uh, after we finished the canon when we did the further adventures after Michael died, sadly. And um, Andrew Sachs came in as Watson. And we tried very hard to build up the same thing over the four series. And I think we succeeded to a certain you, extent. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really think you... you, you but you, yes, I mean, the you, fact that it was Clive and Michael is absolutely central to the way I wrote the stories. And I think some of the other writers too. Yeah, I, I, th I think with Andrew Sachs, it, it was um, it, it is obviously very different from Michael, but um, you knew straight away that this, these are this is Holmes and Watson, possibly yeah. later on in their lives, and they're just as chummy and they're both as aggressive with each other um, as well. And there are some lovely scenes in in the further adventures as well. The, the whole, um, which I can't believe I haven't mentioned yet, the Abergavenny murder as a two-hander. That, that was wonderful. She's like, shall I clear the table and do the autopsy here? So one of my favourite lines, you know, I love, to, I love that. And with so much so that um, Watson even berates Holmes and Holmes backs down and goes, yeah, actually, that was a bit much. I'll, uh, I'll take that back. Thank you. Bearing in mind, we've just had a primary school type entrance from a client where, but he does, where he does actually die this time. Um, the the I, key I to it for me 
was this is going to sound horribly pretentious and i apologize the key to it for me was that i wrote them as real people it's and very very easy if you're dramatizing something like sherlock holmes to think of the icons and to write the icons um i tried very very hard to make them real um whether i succeeded or not i don't know but uh, that was that was always the aim there's a lovely little incident in because uh, I heard it the other day on uh, the scandal of Bohemia, where um, they've had a chat. He's gone back to the well-remembered door and they're having a chat, and they've got through Mrs. Turner and what have you. And then Sherlock just clicks his finger and says, "And now, good night to you." And Michael Williams's reaction to that is, "Oh, oh, oh, I've been dismissed." <laughs> oh, and that's it's such a jar to hear it. And then Holmes very very quietly sort of almost realizes that you know that might be what he says. I'll value a chat with you tomorrow if you come round from round at eleven. Are you prepared to break the law? You know all that sort of thing. And I, th I think the friendship between them. I think that is one of the bedrocks. There aren't that many more, Leslie. I will have to say that I can. No, I understand. And, and the friendship, I think, you know, uh, uh, Bert was right to emphasize it in the series uh, because others had, or you know, scholars, people who looked at sort of the very questions that that somebody just posed about sort of why we like these stories uh, early on knew it was the friendship knew that it was the chance to spend time in the company of these two men uh, Christopher Morley who wrote the very first annotated mm. um, uh, called his book a, a textbook of friendship and um, you know that that was I think clear to the early irregulars, clear to the early members of the Sherlock Holmes Society, um, that, that that's what made us interested in reading these stories. It wasn't the mysteries. It certainly wasn't, uh, you know, clever, intricate mysteries. Um, they're, they're not particularly good mysteries. Uh, not but... even the Mazaran Stone, Leslie. <laughs> First reference to it today. We reference it in every single one. <laughs> You, you have the old cliche, don't you? It's become a cliche over the years that they're not detective stories. They're stories about a detective yeah. and his only friend. And I think that is the right perspective yeah. to take on them. I really do. There's a reason why the ones without Watson don't work. Um, and yeah. it's that they're without Watson, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I mean, things like the Lions made, there's no awe involved. And Watson is in awe of Holmes. Yeah. And, then, and then he's not. Go ahead, Bert. I was just going to say, he never stops admiring him. Yeah. There's a wonderful moment in Murder by Decree um, where Holmes is talking about um, something esoteric, probably masonry. And Watson looks at him and just says, the things you know, Holmes. And it's lovely. It's not... I mean, if you can imagine Nigel Bruce did a that line, it would have been completely different. Um, yeah. It's it's wonderful. It's quiet. It's admiration, yeah. um, and it's understated. It's a lovely moment. Well, it's interesting to contrast uh, others as well. I'm just doing um, a volume for the Library of Congress cl crime classic series mm -hmm. of the Thinking Machine. Um, the Thinking Machine was a detective character created by Jacques Futrell, uh, mm -hmm. written in 1905, uh, 1906, 1907. Um, very popular then, almost forgotten now. Yeah. The, the mysteries, the logic is much more intricate than it was known as, quote, the American Sherlock Holmes, but much more intricate and, and um, clever, if you will, uh, than the canon. But those stories are in the dust piles. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Do we have any more questions, John? Uh, yeah, there's one from uh, Leslie in the chat here. Um, if the stories didn't have so many holes, if the characters were more fleshed out, would they have been as long enduring? Is it the fun of fixing the problems and fleshing out the characters through essays, pastiches, analysis, etc., that keeps them alive? So um, I know that um, for the BBC Sherlock series, uh, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss have said how much fun they've had trying to fix little problems uh, in the canon. Um, so I, I know that they enjoyed that when they were writing the, the, the series. Uh, certainly, what does everyone else uh, think there? I think it, it keeps it certainly keeps them alive for people, if you like, like us. Um, yes. it keeps them alive for, for the fans, for the Baker Street regulars, for all the thousands of people. But I think it's important to, to accept that there's a much wider uh, audience for Holmes and Watson, possibly not a much wider readership, no. as I think someone said right at the beginning of this talk. But um, it's, it's incorrect to say everybody knows them, but, but the names are universal. Yeah. Even people who don't know anything about them know Sherlock Holmes and probably know Dr. Watson. Yeah, um, I, 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 think, I think they have been kept alive by, them, by their own merits rather than by any uh, tricksy doings within the stories themselves. I, I, I agree. I think that it, the, the problem solving has been an enduring feature of the stories, but for a very narrow group of fans. I mean, uh, you know, yes, we all have a lot of Sherlockian friends. Um, you know, how many Sherlockians are there in the world? Real Sherlockians, you know, 10,000 maybe, I don't know. You know, there are millions of readers. I mean, I, I look at it in terms of book sales, for example. I mean, my, yeah. my, my books clearly have sold to a lot of people who are not Sherlockians. Uh, and I, I'm not sure they actually read them, but they bought them uh, because they love the stories. So um, I, I'm the beneficiary of my answer that no, there's a far greater pool than those who enjoy the, pos the puzzles. And, and gauging from the audience figures that we got for the BBC shows, um, I mean, we were getting audiences of a million, a million plus. Um, and you can't tell me that all of those were interested in whether Moriarty goes back to London after he's got off the train. Yeah, exactly, yeah. um, yeah. No, they're, they're just caught up. As we were saying, they're caught up in the stories. They're caught up in the excitement, in the, the narrative, in the atmosphere. We've not, none of us have mentioned atmosphere. Atmosphere is very important. Mm. Um, the stories are incredibly atmospheric, the best of them. One of the reasons why modernising the characters and the settings is difficult is that Holmes and Watson need fog and gaslight and handsome cabs and social hierarchy and blazing coal fires while the world is going darker outside. Yeah. Um, it's an essential part of the uh, of the whole of the. It's an essential part of their world, I think. And uh, then the one fixed point in a changing age, uh, as, as someone might uh, might say that. Yeah. Um, I disagree. I disagree completely. I think that. Uh, I, I mean, I love the. I I love pieces that are set in the Victorian period, but um, first of all, I mean, I, I assume the audience knows this. It wasn't until the Foxhound of the Baskervilles in 1939 that anybody bothered to make a period film. Um, other than that, the, all of the Sherlock Holmes films were simply filmed as contemporary settings. Uh, and second, um, 
I think the great appeal of the stories and of the great endurance of the stories is the plasticity of the characters, that they fit easily into any age. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of the BBC's Sherlock, um, but um, I think that they correctly um, understood that you can move Holmes and Watson to any time period. And as long as you have that core of the friendship, um, it works. Uh, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century, um, Sherlock Holmes uh, with Watson being a woman in New York, etc. It all works. The uh, vast majority of the Rathbone films are set in World War II, aren't they? You know, so it's uh, sure. With the start of one, uh, at least one of them, where it says that uh, Sherlock Holmes can be slotted into any time when he's needed yeah. and yeah. things like that. I mean, I don't mean this to sound disrespectful, Bert. I much prefer oh, no. your work. I prefer the Victorian setting, but um, I, I don't think that having taking Holmes and Watson and moving them outside that setting automatically makes that a lesser um, adaptation. No, I'm, I, I agree with you. I was probably too uh, too emphatic about that before. Uh, I, they, they, they work if you take them out of their setting. Um, it's a tribute to the characters, lack of bedrock or not, <laughs> that they, they can survive almost anything. Uh, it, it is. One thing about the very early film versions, is that some of them were made when the Victorian setting was within living memory. Uh, and that may have been uh, a factor. I mean, if you look at even the early Rathbones, I mean, there's, there's often fog and then, okay, there's the odd motor car and there's yeah. the fashions, but they could almost be Victorian in many ways. I don't, I don't mean the first two, which are Victorian, but the later ones, um, it doesn't require that much of a stretch to make 1930, 1890. Yeah, it does require a huge stretch to make 2020, 1890. The thing I, I, I missed in Sherlock, which I did think worked, I mean, I, I was at a, a, a preview screening of the pilot um, and it worked beautifully. But what I did miss is Holmes as pioneer, Holmes as practically single-handedly inventing forensic science. Mm. And I, I think that that was a loss, <coughs> excuse me, that was a loss. Yeah, yeah, there was this, the Sherlock Holmes blood technique and things like that. Yeah. Or, uh, or, 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 that, or that lovely line, I don't think it was one of yours actually, which was, uh, I wonder if one day there might be a microscope in every police station at some point. As if yeah. you know that's that might happen somewhere way off in the distant future is a little nod yeah. to it. One, one of but, the but yes, what makes what makes Holmes so special as a detective is not the tools, it's not the discovery of uh, the the Sherlock Holmes test. Uh, he's ignorant, really, of figure it's not ignorant of fingerprinting, but it's very limited use in the canon. What makes him distinctive is logic and 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 observation yeah. and that has continued in every um adaptation yeah, yeah. that yes, Holmes, that's, that's fair Holmes sees what the police don't um yeah, yeah that's very fair yes uh, we have another question here for, for Bert um your version of the final problem starts with Moriarty conferring with his associates about their crimes oh, which undoubtedly something they would have done and therefore in the spirit of the canon but it's not specifically mentioned there 
Um, one of the most, one of the frustrating things about the final problem to me has always been uh, that we never hear how Holmes manages to ensure that Moriarty's entire gang is rounded up. At the time, did you ever, in line with your choice to include Moriarty's meeting with associates, consider including an explanation by Holmes of how he succeeded in weaving his net around them? I'd like to say here, this is something I really enjoy about the second Robert Downey Jr. film, um, where it's got that little scene of um, uh, Mary and Lestrade uh, you know, going through Moriarty's uh, uh, files and, uh, and accounts and stuff like that. But yeah, sorry, that was me going off topic that. <laughs> Uh, the, the answer to the question is no, I didn't consider it, um, I, because I wanted to get on with the story. I wanted to draw, a, it's difficult if you've not heard it, I wanted to draw a close parallel between Moriarty and Holmes. And the opening of the show is cross-cutting between Moriarty giving a lecture and illustrating his points on a blackboard, and Holmes talking to police and laying out on a blackboard the organisation of Moriarty's uh, Moriarty's gang. So we go from one drawing on a blackboard to the other, and it's only at the end you discover that the, the professor giving the lecture is Moriarty. I didn't want to go into it more than that, um, partly because I knew that it was going to fail. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's easy for to, to write, because Doyle does it, for Holmes to be furious that they've rounded up everybody except Moriarty. Uh, which haven't, that isn't true, they haven't got Moran either. Um, yeah. But it's, it's another thing entirely to say, to have Holmes lay out a foolproof, wonderful plan for getting everybody, and then him having to say, it didn't work. Yeah. That would be tricky. There's also something about that scene, Bert, which I always think is Moriarty is very aloof, he's very in control in that scene, he's a fantastic Moriarty. And um, Michael Pennington. Michael Pennington. And when, when um, uh, Holmes is, I think it's to the police, he's doing his, his little, spe little speech about, you know, this the whole thing resembles a pyramid and he's explaining you know, how the organization works. And Clive Merrison delivers it in such a way that Holmes is exhausted. He can barely stand up here. As he says, he's been using himself too much recently. And, uh, and, and I think that's a lovely crime is winning here. And that, that's where, you know, because all the way through the second half of the final problems, Holmes is saying that, you know, if I could go now and take him with me, I'm going now. I'm more than happy to do that. So there's always that sense of foreboding in the final problem. Um, starting as, as Leslie, you pointed out in the, in the annotated Holmes, you know, the, that explosive opening paragraph of, you know, by the way, he's dead. Holmes is dead. Or, there's, or it basically says there's no more Sherlock after this. I'm not writing any more about him because I can't. And, and I think... It's important on the on the, the opening scenes that in the in in your version, where Holmes isn't winning, and I think we're talking about things we love about Sherlock Holmes, and when we John and I did the opening um, episodes of the Adventures, we both like the stories where he doesn't win, including the very first one. He doesn't win in the Scandal and Bohemia, and he's more than happy not to win, because you know he feels like he's had an intellectual treat. He's had pudding, isn't he? Where he's like, oh great, I've lost. But it's I've lost and I've learned, so it's really good. And I think there's that element of um, within the story of it of him being human and yet being superhuman. But I love it when Sherlock's tired, Rygate Squires when he's coming back from Baron Mopatui or how he pronounced that, and um, uh, and uh, even Dying Detective when you know he's malingering, he sounds great when he when he's really losing it. And I think that's a very human thing as well, and that that really shines in the final problem. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, 
the uh, the Devil's Foot is another one. Yeah, where, where yeah. He, he's recuperating from you know total exhaustion. Yeah, and that is something that you do lose if you write him as Superman or Supermind. Yeah, um, he mustn't be right all the time. That incidentally, that was one of the things that was agreed in. I mentioned the meeting that we had right at the very beginning for the the semi Bible. That was one of the things that was very definite made points that were very definitely made um he can be wrong he can be um disastrously wrong i mean yeah, in the valley of fear um you know five orange pips. Yeah. people die because he gets it wrong yeah um yeah human the guy is human we don't we don't want to mention the five orange pips with leslie on the call he's gonna <laughs> <laughs> i'm still reeling from that leslie to be honest <laughs> You know, hey, you can't you can't win them all. No, uh, you know. I mean, I, I'd have to say that I don't like them all. I mean, some of the stories are poor. I mean, poor in a way that the final problem in the empty house are not poor. I mean, the final problem in the empty house are have slackness in them and they have improbabilities in them, but they are good stories. They're inventive. I think I it's think. very important to say that they are very, very inventive good stories. stories. Um, some of the later ones, and possibly one or two of the earlier ones, are not good stories. Don't, don't get John started on the case of identity. Oh, I know, I know, I'm still reading about that. <laughs> uh, there is a question that um, we always ask that we haven't asked, and that I knew Carl wanted to ask Bert. Oh, God, yeah. Um, which we normally ask at the start, I've only just realized we never asked uh, it, so... Uh, do the honors, Carl. <laughs> um, one thing we ask, we ask two questions at the beginning of every story. One is, did you like the story? And sometimes people shock us, don't they, <laughs> Leslie? Um, and uh, wait till we do the Mazarin Stone, by the way. We've got someone who likes it. We can't wait to do that. We, we might do that at Palace <laughs> with 35 against one. Um, where, did, where did Sherlock start for you? I mean, I mean, presumably you were a fan before you became a, 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 a writer. Or do, or are you asking me or Les? I'm asking you, asking you both. I, I, I've I, already answered this. Bert, all right. So. Um, <laughs> the honest answer is I can't now remember. It was either the books or it was the radio series with Carlton Hobbs and Norman Shelley on the BBC. I was, I know, I can, I can tell you I was 10 years old when I first discovered Sherlock Holmes. And I can still see in my local library, going into the library, turning left, there was the fiction section. I was only just allowed in the adult section because you, you had to be 10 to have an adult ticket. And there were those wonderful white jacketed um, Wardlock, Wardlock? Uh, editions with the oil paintings on the covers. And I can remember borrowing those. But at the same time, I can vividly, vividly remember listening to the early um, Hobbo and Shelley stories on the radio. And if I hear them now, it conjures up the whole setting for me. It conjures up mm, my yeah. parents' wonderful polished radiogram and the, you know, the, the smell of the living room. Wonderful. So I don't know which came first. Um, possibly they were simultaneous. Possibly I heard the radio first and went and got the books. I don't know. But that's where it started. I, I think the, um, the Carlton Hobbs stories in the, the little opening bit, capital, my dear Watson, let us return to our humble abode. You know, that little speech. Yeah. Thing. The way Norman Shelley says the words, uh, 221B Baker Street, please, cabbie. I, I love that so much. And I don't know why. It's very Nigel Bruce, but I still absolutely love the way he says it. Uh, it's not that Nigel Bruce, thank God. No, no, um, it's not. <laughs> um, 
They, they, they were a good pair. I mean, every age gets the Holmes and Watson that reflects the age. Yeah. And Hobo and, and Shelley were very 50s, early 60s, I think. Yeah. Um, and they were wonderful. The, the, the writing was sparse. Uh, they only had 25 minutes for most of them. Uh, they had to move at a hell of a lick. But they were good. They were atmospheric. Again, that word, they were atmospheric. Atmospheric. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't doubt that it was the radio series that sparked my interest in radio as a medium. And I would never have dreamt back then that I would find myself writing Holmes and Watson. Yeah. You know, under, that, under that thing and writing new ones as well. Well, John, there, there was a question. I'm sorry, to, it's right. There, a question popped up. Someone asking me if I would take part in another podcast. And I, oh, that's, I didn't... that's bad for Madeline. Come on. This is not our show. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, the answer is yes, certainly, but, um, you know, get in touch with me. Well, we, we'll, ask, we'll ask this question as well. Um, we asked at the end of every podcast, we ask, have we got more questions to go? Hopefully, I don't know. Um, um, I haven't seen anything. Madeline says thank you. Um... <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking to you, Madeline. Thank you. Um, quite all right, obviously. Uh, um, <laughs> do you have a favourite story and do you have a least favourite story? No. No, when I was writing them, I couldn't afford to like or dislike them. Mm. I had to approach them all. Uh, I have a sneaking regard for the yellow face, which I like very much. Um, I, I don't like doing negatives. I haven't a least favorite story, no. Uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles is wonderfully atmospheric. I keep saying that. Um, I like the Hound because it's Watson's story. I like Watson. Yeah. I like Watson far yeah, I, more I, I, I like Holmes. I, I yeah. totally agree. Watson is that, far yeah. more interesting than Holmes. Watson is more fun to write than Holmes. Yeah. Um, so I like The Hound. I like A Study in Scarlet. I even like the, the background story in A Study in Scarlet, um, although it's a long time now since I read it. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I don't have an out-and-out favourite. Um, moments. I like moments. You know, there, there are moments um, in... The empty house where Holmes says, "Will you come with me tonight?" And Watson says, "Where you like and when you where like. you like and when you like." Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one absolutely beautiful. I, I think I'm the same with um, uh, with the case book, even though it's probably the most derided of all the collections. But it's got Bruce Partington in it, and it's got it's got Thor Thor Bridge, which I absolutely love. I think that's so inventive that story, and you know, and I don't know. If oh, inventive? Gonna... You mean the story he stole from Hans Gross? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know what they say. You know what they say. Good writers uh, borrow, great writers steal outright. Well, he stole from himself often enough. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> how, how, how many stories are theft of an, a previous story of the same idea? You know, being uh, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm very aware that we've kept you for two hours. Do we have any more questions, John? I can't see anything else in the chat. Um, just a lot of uh, you know feedback on things, but yeah, I think I think we're I think that's all question wise. Uh... Fantastic. Well, Bert, I hope you've enjoyed it. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking. To, I'm only saying this to Leslie because, by the way, because Bert's is, this is his first time on the show, and the poor man's giving well, up a Saturday evening. You knew what I'm, you knew what was coming. I'm so. deeply disappointed. No one has commented on either Bert's shirt or mine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, I've been trying to read yours for ages. It's a. Uh, Friends of the ACD collection uh, wow. at the Toronto Public Library, um, where I am uh, honored to be the chair of the American Friends of the 
Toronto Public Library. Uh, Bert's is a wonderful picture of, you can explain Bert. It's uh, Clive Mason and Michael Williams. Oh, fantastic. In costume for a publicity shot. Um, and where would, what, where would one, by which I mean I, be able to buy that t-shirt? Um, they're, they're not available tomorrow, I'm afraid. I, did, I made this for myself. Fine. Probably, be that way, yes. Pro probably contravening some obscure oh, Absolutely, BBC. yeah. You're going to be right. You're going to get letters for that. As long, as long as you don't sell them, it's fine, probably, Bert, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I got very certain letters when I wrote uh, my book, 221 BBC. I had a letter from the BBC saying, you must make it absolutely clear that this is not an authorised BBC production, um, that, that we have not uh, had any control over it whatsoever. So I had to put a line in, um, you know, this is not authorised. And yet, this is the same organisation that turns a complete blind eye to pirate copies of my shows, being yeah. sold on eBay, <laughs> um, to the, the soundtracks being put up on YouTube. Yeah. Um, all of which is taking money from my pocket and the pockets of the other writers. I <laughs> but the BBC, and you know, we those of us in America feel like you've been blessed. The BBC is so uh, eclectic in what it yeah. will broadcast. Uh, when I came to London to be uh, on book tour with Dracula, I had arranged an event I was going to be interviewed uh, on the BBC and they said to me you'll be interviewed by the BBC's vampire expert <laughs> Kim Newman and I thought they have a vampire expert what is Kim Newman <laughs> it, it was Kim Newman yes yeah. I, I have I have got a couple more questions here uh, very quickly um uh, I went on on YouTube I didn't know you I, I forgot the YouTube comments we only have one comment where can we get Bert's book 221 BBC that if wasn't you, me I asked Bert that same question about a month ago but that wasn't me uh if if you go to my website which is bertcalls.co.uk there are links there basically you can buy it from two sources you can buy it from the publishers in America or you can buy it directly from me if you don't want to pay the uh, the postage for the American uh, edition. It's, it's the same book, um, bertcalls.co.uk, follow the links. Thank you for all. Oh, there you go. Thank you, Charles. I, it, it, I, I've also had a question sent to me privately uh, for Leslie, which I'm going to ask you if she doesn't feel left out. Uh, this is coming from Jonathan Menges. Um, so, Jonathan in Kansas is who edits and publishes our shows on the Rippercast feed. Um, so he is asking, would Leslie like to come on Rippercast to talk about the Lodger and Holmes versus uh, the Ripper? What's going um, on here? <laughs> That's well, you get commissions though. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> no one's making a penny from this thing, believe me. <laughs> yeah, this has cost me sure. money. I've had to pay as buy a Zoom license. Yeah, <laughs> Jonathan. Um, sure. So, so yes, the answer is sure. Reach out to me through my website, leslieesklinger.com. I can introduce you both, actually. I can do yeah, that. Thank you. Jonathan's a friend of ours, yeah. And I know that Bert as well, you've got currently got a play or something that's happening that you mentioned. Yes, yes. Um, I just want to give a quick plug of that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, called, it's called Watson, The Final Problem. And basically, it's the story of the final problem and the hiatus. Purely from Watson's point of view, it's a one-man play. Um, I was commissioned by an actor called Tim Marriott to write it. Uh, it's been touring around various festivals in England to, to some success. And 
and we're taking it to the Edinburgh Festival next month oh, okay. uh, for a solid run of three weeks. Uh, so please go to Edinburgh, watch Watson, The Final Problem. It's um, If you go online, go to smokescreenprods.com, smokescreenprods.com, as in productions.com. Uh, follow the links. There's all sorts of information about it there. There's background stills. There's, uh, there's an audio version, which we made during lockdown. We were all set to run out with the roll out with the play and not the first lockdown happened so we made an audio version that's available online as well um and tim is enjoying a, a nice success with it which is very pleasing it, it, yeah. it will of course be coming to norfolk won't it Bert? um i i was yeah, no, no one ever says yes to that question <laughs> I, I, was, I was gonna say i made contact my local theater to see if they fancy booking it in and, uh, yeah, yeah please everybody to, to, to um, we'd love we'd love to bring it to america it would be wonderful to bring it to America. Um, there you go, let's sort that out. Uh, well, of the, course. The only thing in the way is the money. Um, you know, no, we, we don't make money from the play, or very little money. Uh, we need a backer to bring it to America. It would be lovely to bring it over and do it uh, the BSI weekend, or to do it at the, uh, uh, from Gillette to Brett, if there's an, ever another one. It would be lovely to do that. Um, just, you know, donate like crazy. <laughs> we, we shall certainly do that. Um, Bert, would you be interested in coming on and doing a, a later show for us if I send you a list? Uh, yeah, sure. Of, what, of what's available. Um, people aren't sick and tired of me by then. No, no, not at all. No, this has been absolutely fantastic, Jordan. I think everyone else in the audience has said so as well throughout the night. It's been really, it's been fantastic. We could sit here for another four hours, but um, um, let's just, did you start to go to a wedding today, Les? Yes, I have a wedding to go to at 2.30 this afternoon. What time so... is it over for you? It's 11 a.m. So wow, I mean, talk about commitment to the cause, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and books to write too. So lots oh, of wow. things going on. So Absolutely. do well, I get to plug? Do I get to plug books too? Of course you do. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. So uh, uh, Lisa Morton and I have a collection of uh, stories coming out. Uh, uh, it's an anthology of not our stories that we collected called Haunted Tales, which comes out in the middle of August. Um, and uh, in October, um, the new annotated uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, excellent. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like the sound of that. All right. I'm making notes hey. here. <laughs> things, wish things list, things. wish list. <laughs> I don't know if I could do this. Oh, yes, we can see that. Nice. A fly off of the Watson show. If Very nice. A photo of that, we're happy to retweet that. And the same for, for, for your books as well, Leslie. We'd happy to do that. Put it on our enormous Twitter feed, which, of course, as I've pointed out, I've been giving the wrong address for nearly three years now at the end of the show. <laughs> uh, we're at Adler 2, not Adler to Amberley. Um, I will fix that at some point as well. Um, we will be back with The Crooked Man, the next one, uh, which I absolutely love. I love The Crooked Man so much. Basically because of Peter Salas, um, who, who plays Holdacre in... Is it Holdacre? Um, will there be an actual mongoose on the show? Uh, oh no! Sorry, sorry. Uh, the Norwood Builder, not the Crooked Man. No, we we when we did the Crooked Man, we did it with Trevor Bond, um, who's a friend of ours, and the mongoose talk alone took forty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Tre Trevor had researched all of the laws um, uh, pertaining to importing a mongoose into the into England at the time. <laughs> um, we we think his biggest crime throughout the whole thing is obviously because he doesn't kill poor Barkley or, or James Barkley. Um, but it's, 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 it's torn the French export of mongoose, mongooses, plural, not mongoose, 
um, to pieces, and he really should be punished for that alone. And let, let me just say that Trevor's analysis of it was forensic into what he had done wrong. We knew, we we found out an awful lot about mongooses about that. We think we might be bringing in to discuss the novels, but I, I, I'm not quite sure I can talk about hounds and things with, with Trevor. We, we will be here all day. One of, one of the great advantages of radio is that Teddy the mongoose on radio was... <laughs> and that was it, you know. That's a high-tech special effect there. Absolutely. I bet what, we haven't mentioned, we haven't mentioned your cameo in your own adventures. Oh, yeah, we have, well, there are a couple, actually. Um, I, I, I was allowed to play a, a couple of one-line parts in earlier ones. I was a cabbie. Hup Guinevere, I said. Is that you? I didn't <laughs> know that me. was you. Yes. Hup Guinevere. Um, and in the very final story, The Marlborne Point Mystery, I played the postmaster. You played the postmaster, I actually yeah. had three lines. I can't remember what they were. But I was very trepidatious about doing it. And they paid you, the BBC paid you handsomely as an actor as well as a writer there, did they? Absolutely, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I was, I was, didn't want, in some ways I didn't want to do it because it was possible that I was putting a young actor out of work. Yeah, that's the... Except for, for three lines, they wouldn't have brought someone in. They would have had one, someone else in the cast, double as the postmaster. So I, I was happy that I wasn't... Uh, yeah. Yes, you can do that in radio. You know, it, it was done in the New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the uh, uh, the television production, the Ronald Howard television production. Uh, they were so cheap that they frequently doubled the actors who would show up in the first 10 minutes in one part and in the last 10 minutes in a completely different part. Excellent. Uh, so the BBC isn't the only one who does that. So. <laughs> but it is harder in television. Yeah, it's, true. Yes. it's a very common device in theatre, though, isn't it? You know, you go see the RSC and they've always got, you know, double or triple up parts and the. Oh, like, sure. and the but but in the theatre, you see, that's versatility. Yes. In, in radio, that's economy. Yeah. <laughs> I, shall, I shall never hear up Guinevere again. <laughs> was that. Was that Hound? Or was it. Um, I can't remember now. I don't remember. I'm sorry. It might be Studying Scarlet, I'm sure. I'm not sure. Um, well, Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on to the show. It's our longest ever running show, and I wish it was twice as long. I really do. <laughs> but um, but somebody's getting married, and Les has to be there. So that seems only fair. And it's, it's not Les like... who's getting married, thankfully. I mean, that would be it's the my answer. assistant. My assistant is getting married. So um, oh, I'm, congratulations oh, to her. Congratulations. <laughs> Repsi Yegazarian is her name, and so now she's internationally famous. So can she come and do a show? Sure. Well, well, everyone else is inviting everybody else onto each other's show. <laughs> That's the way to it. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for coming to join us and make this a... You're such very a welcome. I've loved this. It's been amazing. Thank okay, you, everyone. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks everybody. Thanks to everybody. Thanks, thanks to everyone for the questions as well. Yeah. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>